We're going to be in the sixth chapter of Judges. So open your Bible to there, go to there in your phone or whatever it is that you're using to get to God's Word. We're continuing with this episode in Gideon's life in which he has to tear down the literal idols in his life prior to God using him as a judge. And so make no mistake, God has already chosen Gideon to be the judge before Gideon did anything at all. Gideon wasn't seeking God. He ultimately rejected Yahweh in his pursuit of Baal or Baal in Hebrew um, and Asherah. He, he doubted the goodness of God and he called into question God's covenant promises. If you look back at verse 13 in chapter 6, you see that. And his opinion was that God had forsaken the Israelites and was instead blessing the Midianites. And that couldn't be any farther from the truth. In reality, Israel and Gideon had forsaken the true God. They had forsaken Yahweh. He wasn't enough, they thought. And so they offered worship to Baal and to Asherah, the false gods of the land that they inhabited. But God's not going to go back on his covenant promises to save. So no matter how wicked Israel would become within an old covenant context, uh, God is going to still bless them because of the promised new covenant, the covenant of grace, which is made in Jesus' blood, as we read in the Gospels, and God's going to continue to lead Israel, the nation, in temporal repentance based upon that. And so Gideon approaches God, or excuse me, the way around, God approaches Gideon, he reveals himself to him, he makes him aware of his sin and the people's sin, and he commands him to do something about it. We read about this last week. God told Gideon to take his father's bulls and then to take them to these big idols that his dad had constructed that this whole city would even use and to tear down these, these two statues, these two altars. And it's a, it's a bit ironic, isn't it? God, out of all the people in Israel, that he would decide to choose the son of a man who contributed in a large way to the idolatry of Israel. God chose a great sinner who was the son of a great sinner to bring his deliverance to bear. And that's good news to us, you guys. It reminds us, it tells us that our sin and the sin of those who we know, who we share the gospel with, isn't something that is too much for God to overcome. God, in his plan of glorifying his great name, has chosen people who, in his providence, are great sinners and he's chosen to redeem them. He takes men and women who never even give God two thoughts in a day, and he makes them sons and daughters of his kingdom. He, he takes murderers, drunks, liars, cheaters, and the sexually immoral, and he even takes people who persecute and even kill other Christians, as it was in the example of the Apostle Paul, and he washes them clean, and he grants them new life and an inheritance in Christ, all because of who Christ is and because of what Christ has done. But Gideon, you know, of course, he doesn't deserve to be used by God, but God in his providential kindness bestows grace upon him, and here we are. God's going to use him. And this is the gospel according to Judges. So now that God is going to use Gideon, Gideon is going to need to put to death his old ways. He has to die to self. It's the Christian's response to God in acting in our lives. We don't do the things that we do. We don't live the life that we live to be saved by God, but we live the Christian life. We take up our cross daily. We seek to die to self because of what God has done for us already. We do it in response. 
And for Gideon, he has to tear down his household idols. And we dealt with that last week. So let's consider what happens next. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to read our text for tonight. Um, Just a couple verses. This is the reading of the word of the Lord beginning at verse 28 in Judges chapter 6. It says, When the men of the town rose early in the morning, behold, the altar of Baal was broken down, and the Asherah beside it was cut down. And the second bull was offered on the altar that had been built. And they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And after they had searched and inquired, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. And then the men of the town said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, for he has broken down the altar of Baal and cut down the Asherah beside it. So that ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. Let's pray. Let's ask God to bless our time as we consider the text for tonight. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you would grant to us understanding, not simply understanding the words and the English of them, but understanding at a spiritual level. Lord, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would illuminate our minds and our hearts and that you would from it cause us to know you all the more and to cherish the gospel by which we are saved all the more. In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. Okay, so... We have our answer to the question we asked last week in the text, don't we? Will Gideon be popular uh, with his community for obeying God at this matter? And the answer, of course, is no. But it's perhaps a little bit more complex than that when we consider his dad next week. Uh, we'll save that for when we get there. But let's first consider his, the response of the town people. Okay, That's what we're mostly considering tonight is the response of the townspeople to Gideon's act of tearing down these two altars. They're not happy, are they? They get up early in the morning. And why? Because they're going to seek out their God. Apparently, this is still a very religious bunch of people, but their religion is all messed up. They have zeal, but it's misplaced. Remember, zeal is a good thing. Hopefully you talked about that in small groups a little bit. Uh, Zeal is what caused Jesus to flip the money changers' tables in the temple. Remember that in the New Testament, there's two different accounts where Jesus goes into the temple and the teachers of the day had set up these money changing tables so the Israelites could come in there, they could buy a lamb or a dove, an animal to sacrifice, and then they would you know, give them the animal. But it was this big like scheme actually where the, the priests weren't actually even sacrificing the animals, they were just pretending to, and they were taking their money and then reselling them to another person. And Jesus knows this, and he goes in, and he, out, out of zeal, out of a fiery passion for the holiness of God's people and God's temple, which is supposed to be a place of prayer, he makes a cord out of three strands, and he whips these people who are doing this and deceiving the people, and he flips over their money tables. And it was all because of zeal. So zeal is not a bad thing at all, but a misplaced zeal is a very deadly thing. So these people arise early in the morning. They're not sluggards, it would seem. They're not lazy. They have affections, but those affections are grossly misplaced. Rather than seeking the God who they are in covenant with, they arise early to worship Baal. Gideon, I presume, is is asleep at this time because of the night before he took 10 guys and this bull and he tore down their altars and then he committed a, he held a sacrifice there on the altar and they constructed an an altar to the Lord. Yeah, Adam? It says that he took two bulls and he sacrificed the second one. What did he do with the first one? 
We talked about this a little bit last week. This is a good question. So he's asking about two bulls. There's only one bull mentioned being sacrificed. What happened to the other one? It's debated in the text if he actually took two bulls or not. If you look at it in the original language, which isn't necessary for us to really get into that, it, could, it kind of seems like there's only one bull that he took. And so like he used the bull to put on the altar, and then he sacrificed that one. If he didn't, he probably just gave it back to his dad, as I'm, I'm assuming at that point. But we're not, we're not told. In their, in their English translations, it does say two bulls, though. But like I was, in all the commentaries I read, they all said that this is highly debatable. It's one bull, but that's what it is, I guess. So take or leave it. Um, so Gideon, I assume he's just asleep at this time. Um, he's nowhere to be found. He's not there standing by the, the thing that he did. And so think, though. If the zeal of these townspeople, if it was rightly placed on Yahweh rather than Baal, the God who led their forefathers out of the wilderness by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day, would they even be in this situation? We're thinking hypothetically now, of course, because this history is, or this text that we're reading is recorded history in Judges about God's plan to bring us a Redeemer. But if the people sought Yahweh with the commitment they showed to Baal, would God's wrath and judgment be upon them? And the Old Covenant, the answer, it tells us no. Remember, this is why they were in trouble. This is the whole reason why they found themselves under the judgment of God through the Midianites. is because they weren't seeking God, because they were, they were not to fear the Amorite gods, verse 10 in chapter 6. And here they are fearing them, rising early and going to them to go offer sacrifices, most likely to offer some form of worship. So listen to what God tells Israel in Deuteronomy chapter 10, you can flip back there. It's, just keep your finger in Judges. It's, it's close. This is Deuteronomy 10, 17 to 20. He says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. So were they doing that? Was Israel doing that? They're not, right? They're not fearing the Lord their God, serving him, holding fast to him, and swearing by his name. They're doing that with Baal. They rose early to petition Baal and Asherah. Or, let's turn, if you're still in Deuteronomy... Go to the next book, to Joshua, and go to the 24th chapter. It's just a couple pages over. It's right before, if you go back to Judges 6, it's just a little bit right before Judges 6, because Joshua 24 is the last chapter in Joshua. This is verse 14 and 15. He says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Okay, essentially the same thing that we just read in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Moses is still alive. Um, and Joshua, Moses, it's not alive. Moses wasn't allowed to come in the promised land, but Joshua was the successor to Moses, and he's reaffirming for them the old covenant promises and uh, what they had to do in order to reap a blessing and what they would be cursed for if they failed to do. So verse 14, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river 
or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my, and my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, isn't that exactly what the Israelites have forgotten to do? To put away the gods of the Amorites? They've chosen not to follow Yahweh. When we're in Judges chapter 6, they've chosen not to follow Yahweh. They're following the gods of the Amorites. Now, how do you think Israel as a whole answers Joshua? Because if you look back here at Joshua 24, they do answer him. It's verse 16. So they go as far as to say this. They say, Far be it from me that we should forsake the Lord and serve other gods. In other, ways, they, in other words, they say, No, we're going to follow Yahweh too. Far be it from me that we should forsake the Lord and follow other gods. And that's a smart thing to say. It was the right thing to say. Even more, it's the right thing to do. It's a thing that we should all say and do. But you see, they forgot something that Joshua knew. So let's look at Joshua down in verse 19, chapter 24. But Joshua said to the people, You are not able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn to you and do harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we'll serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. So you see, the Israelites seem to be disillusioned, whereas Joshua was, was not. Joshua tells them plainly, you're not able to serve the Lord, but the Israelites believe they could. The problem is that they don't understand that their nature, what makes them to be a human being, apart from being saved and having their nature being made new, is it is dead in sin. They don't understand that they are what's called depraved. They don't understand their depravity. Their propensity to sin and reject the Lord, even in light of seeing so much from Him, I mean, how is it possible that so many Israelites could reject God soon after witnessing the ten plagues and then, being, and then walking through the Red Sea, the split Red Sea? How could you reject God soon after that, seeing all of those things? How can you deny Him at that point? And yet, nevertheless, that's what we read in the early parts of Exodus. Even more, how could Judas spend three years walking with Jesus, learning from him, seeing the miracles that he did, and then deny him and betray him? You see, friends, before we are saved, we are dead in our sins. Commonly, this is called the doctrine of total depravity. It's from the acronym TULIP, which seeks to explain the way of salvation. The, it's, those are doctrines concerning salvation, total depravity, unconditional election, limited, to, uh, limited atonement, thank you, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints, tulip, okay? And total depravity means that we are unable to please God and that we are in fact separated from Him. It means that we are dead in our sins, spiritually dead. It doesn't mean that we're as bad as we can be, but that our, very, our, our every faculty, our mind, our emotions, our will, our body, it's total in other words, is depraved. It's spiritually dead. It actually opposes God rather than wanting to do what God says. And our condition is so bad, so hopeless, that we can actually do nothing about it except pray that God will be merciful and reveal himself to us. 
So in other words, it can happen like with Gideon earlier in the chapter. God seeks us out and he reveals himself to us and he calls us to eternal life through a relationship with him built upon the righteousness and forgiveness we have in Christ. Gideon wasn't seeking God, right? He was in his father's threshing floor when the angel of the Lord appeared to him. But I mentioned also that we can pray as well. And what I mean by that is if you believe yourself to not be saved, well, would you actually care? If you believed yourself to not be saved, would you care about that? I mean, to be saved means that you find God delightful. Not a God that you've made up in your own mind, not a God who likes the things that you just like, but a God who, the God who has revealed himself in Scripture. And if you are concerned that you're not saved and you want to be, then pray and ask for mercy. Uh, repent of your sins and confess that Jesus is Lord, that he died and now lives for you because if you genuinely pray a prayer like that, it's because God has first come to you and shown you in your heart, in your soul, that you need him and you can't do it yourself. Does that make sense? If you have this desire to pray that prayer, then pray that prayer. Because if so, it's because God has come to you. Because you wouldn't have that desire to pray that prayer if God had not come to you. Only those who are saved actually desire to be saved and to know and to follow the true God. If you want to be, quote, saved, but then live your life as you desire and not how God would desire it, are you actually saved? You're not. You just want to appease your conscience, and that is a bad place to be. In the Proverbs, uh, Jesus is often personified as wisdom. And the New Testament tells us that Jesus is the wisdom of God. And of wisdom, in Proverbs eight seventeen, it says, it's like wisdom is speaking here. It says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me will find me. But... If you don't actually love him, then you're not even going to be seeking him. And don't get the order wrong. It's been a while since we were in 1 John, but remember 1 John 4.19? We love because he first loved us. So if you love God, then you would want to seek him. And so if you're, if you're wondering about your salvation and you want to be saved, well, just understand that people who aren't saved really don't want to be saved. And we talk through these things more, you grow in your assurance and in sanctification. But even desiring salvation is something that the person who is not saved would never actually want. And they might desire salvation from the consequences of their sin, but they don't desire the Lord himself, right? So that's why I said earlier, if you're saved, you delight in the Lord. You love the Lord. You want to live your life according to the way that, the, that God says we should live our lives, not the way that we want to live our own lives. So, let's think back to the townspeople. They weren't seeking God, not the true God at least. They were seeking Baal. And that begs the question for us. Who are we seeking? Not that seeking God saves us, but seeking shows that we are the objects of his saving affection, right? If we're seeking God, it shows, it reveals that we are the objects of his saving affections. So who are we seeking? You know, when we wake up in the morning, is the first thing that we do, uh, maybe even before using the bathroom or brushing your teeth. You all do that in the morning, I hope. But it, before we even do any of those things, 
Is the first thing you do, you know, check your phone? Is it, are you looking for text messages? Are you checking social media? Are you looking up sports scores, national news? What about the rest of the day? It's easy to be busy. School, work, social lives, entertainment, problems. What about at night? Probably wiped out from the long day. Are we seeking the Lord? Not, legalistic, not legalistically, like I have to wake up early and seek the Lord very for the very first thing. Not that sort of way, but joyfully. Do you want to? Is it something that's being forced upon you from your parents to do? Or is it something that you want to do? Now, I would say that it's wise to seek God in prayer as the first thing you do in the morning. I mean, that's how these religious people did it with Baal, even. But not legalistically, but joyfully, because you delight to ask God to help you throughout the day. And so you you go to God early because you know you need help, number one. And number two, you want to engage with your God. Before your head even leaves the pillow, you can do that. But certainly before you pick up your device, you know, it's wise to seek the Lord and petition for his help and mercy and grace in the day, don't don't you think? Uh, The wonderful thing about the true God is that we don't have to go to some special place to worship him. These Israelites here had to go to this altar of Baal and Asherah. And we don't have to do that. We worship God in spirit and truth. We could do it at any time, anywhere. You you could be in your classroom at school and still spending time in prayer. And you should, because you need help. God's help even in school. You need his help all the time, every time. But do you make other times throughout the day to seek him? You know, are you even aware of him throughout the day? That's what you should be thinking of. Okay? So remember, just because we don't have Baal and Asherah altars doesn't mean that we aren't guilty of idol worship. So if you notice you have in your life a misplaced zeal, because we should be zealous for God first over everything else in our lives, God is gracious and he doesn't refuse repentant sinners. So if you notice that there is zeal for other things in your life and you consider yourself to be a Christian, well, repent of those things. Because God accepts you based on repentance, based upon the merits of Christ. So if you have misplaced zeal, repent and pray for grace to order your life rightly. It's a normal thing to do in the Christian's life. It's a normal aspect of the Christian's life to repent and to try to seek and to depend upon God for grace to try to seek Him better. It's a normal thing to do. We all, I still do it. We all still do it. Struggling against desires that vie for preeminence in our lives when God should be first And the most important thing to us out of love is a normal thing that a Christian does. It's a normal struggle for the believer. And just so you know that these that this town these townsfolk here are a lost bunch, uh, because not only did Gideon tear down the false idols, what did he construct? An altar to the true God, right? Um, Look at the hardness of their heart. Listen. What we should get out of this is that the awe that is just awe in God because God would desire to save this people. And when we see this, really, you know, our jaws should hit the floor as we contemplate the mercy and grace of God caught up in it. Because the false God idols are torn down and an altar to the one true God is in its place. And their response in verse 29 is, who has done this? And the answer is, it's Gideon, 
Joash's son. And then verse 30, bring out your son that he may die for what he did. That's their response. They probably know who did it because remember Gideon took 10 people with them. And most likely Gideon should probably be there. Gideon should probably be there in the morning. You know, it's probably morning, but all worship. And they're Gideon's dad's statues. So altars. So obvious question and answer time, okay? Are they happy that Gideon did this? No. They did. Did Gideon's faithfulness to God in the situation make him popular with the people who actually hate God? No. No, right? Easy, obvious question and answer time. So notice the hardness of their hearts, their depravity. This is all backwards. Tearing down the Baal and Asherah altars was a good thing, yet they found it to be a deep evil. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 5.20 said, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And they're calling something good here evil, aren't they? Had they truly known the Lord and loved him, um, who has done this thing is what they should have said when someone first constructed those altars to Baal and Asherah. When Gideon's dad, I'm assuming, is the one who did that, when he first put those up, the townspeople should have said, who has done this thing? That should have been their response at that point. But they have a misplaced zeal. And the irony gets thicker. Notice the faithfulness of God contrasted by the wrath of man. Their judgment upon Gideon is that he should die. It's death. Now, if Baal and Asherah were real, then they're right. Gideon should die if Baal and Asherah were real and worthy of worship. They're not wrong in their reaction, and that'll get played out in the next section. But the irony is that this is what God should do to them. God would be within his right. He is holy to, he is holy to judge these Israelites with death. They're the ones who have destroyed the true temple of God with their Baal worship. 1 Corinthians 3 tells us that anyone who destroys God's temple, God himself will destroy. Now granted here at this point, the understanding of God's elect people being a temple is very limited or even non-existent. But nevertheless, God is gracious. He's not destroying them for their rebellion against him. And God is literally planning to deliver the very people who are so committed to their idolatry that they would kill the person that God has chosen to be their deliverer. You see how committed they are to to their evilness, to their idolatry. They are wanting to kill the person that God has chosen to be the the person to take them out of their sin and, and out of their judgment. How great and merciful and faithful our Lord is. And doesn't this remind us of another instance in Scripture? An instance of people being so committed in their idolatry that they decide to kill the person that God is sending to be their deliverer. Well, the men in town have a lot in common with the people who killed Jesus, don't they? The big difference here is that God is providing a temporal deliverance for Old Covenant Israel with Gideon. They don't go through with it. We'll see that next week. But with Jesus, God was providing eternal salvation for New Covenant Israel all of those chosen in Christ. And Christ had to die for Israel for this spiritual Israel to be saved. If you're trusting in Christ tonight, you are rightly called spiritual Israel. If your zeal is for him, you're the spiritual Israel that Christ died for. But the the thing is the same. Jesus was killed by people 
who God was intending to deliver. Jesus died for all of our sin as well, even though we weren't there. None of us in this room was there at the cross. That was over 2,000 years ago. But we all need to see ourselves there. Why? Because it was our sin that Christ died for, if you are, in fact, trusting in Christ for salvation. None of us were physically actually present there. But if you're believing in Jesus, it is your sin that he died for, so it might as well, might as well be that you were there watching him die. And you, because of Christ dying, you can have joy abundantly, no matter what is going on in your life, because you know your deliverer succeeded. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He rose on the third day for our justification, and he lives to make intercession for us. So may our zeal for God, or may our zeal be for God, for who he is and what he has done. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Help us to understand the depths of our sin, Lord. Um, seeing the sin of these Israelites here is shocking but illuminating because we're not all that different, to be honest. And so we ask that you would cause us to be remorseful over our sin, to hate it, and that you would remind us of your faithfulness and your goodness to even call us out of darkness into your marvelous light before we had done any good thing, before we had done any right thing. We know that our salvation depends upon you and you alone, so we praise you for the gift of salvation, and we ask that you would help us to understand our need for you rightly and to understand you and your covenant promises truthfully. To you be all glory and praise in Jesus' name. Amen.